Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. It has been so long. It's been about a month and a half. (laughs) Yeah, but it feels like a long time. It does feel so long. Yeah, in case you haven't heard, we stepped away for a little while to regroup, do some planning, do some resting, and now we're back and we have some really cool stuff planned. Yeah, we're back and better than ever. We got a whole list of releases ready for y'all. We got some cool movies to talk about. And we have some new friends. We do have some new friends. Dare I say a sister podcast? Oh my God, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe unofficially a sister podcast, but I would consider a sister podcast nevertheless. I'll wait for them to confirm that we're at the sister level, but we're at minimum best friends. Right, so they're called The Horror Show by Quim City Productions on Instagram. There are two fabulous hosts. Darby and Charlie. So they are interested in horror, sex, gender, all of that fun stuff, just like us. So if you're into us, you'll love them. Exactly. And we are so excited about possible horror shows on the horizon where you may hear four voices instead of two. That would be a dream. I know. Like I said, in my mind, we're best friends already. So I'm just excited to get to know them more and know that there's so much horror to go around. Exactly. My cousin actually told me a pretty funny story the other day about our podcast. Oh, please tell me more. Okay. So my cousin lives in a New York City apartment and I guess her roommate was bothering her. So she decided to blast her podcast listening in return to her roommate blasting her own music. (laughs) And so she told me that Puritan Ladies was on full blast while she was in her room cleaning (laughs) as a weapon of choice against her roommate's noise. (laughs) We love a horror history lesson as retribution against your shitty roommate. (laughs) So yeah, if you're looking for a way to kind of get back at your roommate or anybody who's bothering you, consider using our podcast. Especially Puritan ladies, because that was like the love child. No, because <laughs> because that was a labor of love for Elise. I, Elise can take all of the credit for Puritan ladies and the masterful episode that that is. Not love child. It is like a child to me. <laughs> <laughs> it does well. It's a good episode. <laughs> I think about it sometimes and it makes me smile. But we're back, and I think this episode's going to be my love child, because I love this film just as much as you love your fucking Puritans. We decided that when we came back from this little hiatus that we needed to come back with a bang, and we have gotten requests for this movie. I have been so nervous to cover this movie because it is one that is near and dear to my heart, but the day has come for us to cover Jennifer's body. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow, wow. The 2009 horror comedy extravaganza that bombed at the box office but won over my heart and the hearts of many. (laughs) Yeah, I had never seen this movie prior to preparing for this episode, which is a story that is pretty standard at this point because we all know that I don't love horror. (laughs) Even though we have this podcast and I am a co-host on it. But I will say that I enjoyed it. It is a horror comedy, as you may know if you're familiar with the film. So I did appreciate some of the more comedic moments. And I thought the storyline itself was interesting. So yeah, I'm really excited, as I'm sure you are, to hear what specifically Shay has found out about this film, what she's already known about this film, and what kinds of conversations we can have surrounding it. 
Absolutely. And for those who might have listened to our past episodes, this has major Ginger Snaps vibes. So if you're a fan of that episode or a fan of that movie, then you're in for a treat. It is another 2000s quippy dialogue, questionable joking, (laughs) some slut shaming, Mm -hmm. but it's great. The movie wasn't as well received during the time it came out, and I'm going to talk about that at length, but it really didn't get its audience until years and years and years later. Like It kind of came and went, but then people found it, whether it be because of who stars in it or some of the content or whatever. But now it's considered like a cult classic and people really, really love and appreciate this movie. And that's shown by the amount of people that have asked us to cover it. Yeah, I think I was a fan of it when it came out, but I don't think I really fell in love with it until a couple years later, just because this is a horror movie by women for women. And thus, that's why it didn't do well at the time, just because, as we know, the demographic of horror movie fandom just tends to be cis, white, straight, young dudes. And of course, if it's judged in that demographic, it's not going to do well. But in this case, just some of the struggles and the intimacy that is depicted in the film is just so close to my experience and so many others' experiences as well, I imagine. So... We're going to do something a little different where I give a lot of buildup and context to how this movie even came to be before we go over it, because I think that's going to be important context to know just in terms of why it was received the way that it was during the time. I fucking love context. Elise is a horror (laughs) for historical context, as we know. So as I said, I've always been a fan of the movie, but... I, like many others, didn't recognize how the film is really able to capture the intimacy of women relationships and friendships, the amount of shame that goes into kind of building the character of a teenage girl, and some of the double standards that exists between men and women, especially in a high school competitive sexualized setting. So I want to take us back to about 2005 and who wrote the film. And this film was written by Diablo Cody, which I fucking love her name. Yeah, what a cool fucking name. She's cool as shit. So Diablo Cody in 2005 was gaining fame from a book that she wrote called Candy Girl, A Year in the Life of a Stripper. She was a sex worker for a couple of years prior to that, while also writing for weekly newspapers, blogs, and magazines. And she also had another like online blog. And due to the success of her book and her blog, she was encouraged by her manager to write a screenplay. And her very first screenplay was Juno. Every time I think of Juno, I think of the scene with all of those boys running around the track in their loose-fitting short yellow shorts and their dicks are slow motion flopping up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I just think how at the time when I had long hair and Elliot Page had long hair, people told me I looked like Elliot Page all the time. And And Elliot Page has short hair now, and so do you, so you still look like Elliot Page. Oh my god, (laughs) yes. If if Elliot Page continues to be my celebrity lookalike, I'll still be very happy. (laughs) But yes, so Juno was released in 2007, and Diablo Cody won an Oscar for Best Screenplay, among many other accolades. And remember, this is her first release as a screenwriter, so that's like a lot of pressure to like really hit a grand slam on your first at-bat. The success of Juno allowed her the freedom to write essentially whatever she wanted. And since she was a lifelong horror fan, she really jumped at the opportunity to write a horror film about sex, female friendship, and a girl who eats boys. 
when she was helping casting the movie, there was no question in her mind that Jennifer Check was always going to be played by Megan Fox, just due to the level of mystique that Megan Fox was able to maintain with her fame, especially after her rise to prominence after the first Transformers movie. And that's when really the media started looking at her as like this sex symbol and really sexualizing Megan Fox. I mean, we were both around in the 2000s. And if you talk to like any dude or you were in any like teenage boy's bedroom, there was some picture of Megan Fox in scantily clad clothing on their wall, like without question, like Megan Fox was to teenage boy sexuality, what egg rolls are to a Chinese buffet. Like I don't <laughs> un- like, like there's not one doesn't exist without the other. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, she's gorgeous. I've never seen any of the Transformer movies. So this was the first time I saw Megan Fox in a movie. And she really is gorgeous. She's captivating. And she's absolutely perfect for the role. Then we got the director. And the director is Karen Kusama. And the the first film I recognized of her directing was Girl Fight in 2000. And I think you and I had to watch this for our Latina literature class, if you remember. Oh, my gosh. It stars Michelle Rodriguez, which is essentially the movie is about this girl who really rises to prominence in obviously this very men-dominated sport and uses boxing to channel her aggression and her strifes in life through boxing. And that's a theme actually throughout a lot of Karen Kusama. Sama's work is really centering women as her protagonists. And that made her like a really good fit for this movie, just because that was a lot of her career thus far up until that time. That is so cool. And she, along with Diablo Cody, are both outspoken feminists, and they really wanted to do this movie right. They really wanted to create really like a love letter to women horror fans. And just like we discussed in our first episode, although the perceived demographic of horror tends to be men it really is even like 51 to 49 percent of like who consumes horror is women but how much of horror is made with women in mind and this was one of those films that was ready at the time to be like this one's for the ladies and they were able to do that so they released the movie in september in 2009 and it was considered a commercial failure the film grossed approximately 31 million dollars on a budget of around 16 million dollars so it just got its budget back and doubled it but just in terms of like commercial success of something like transformers that obviously doesn't touch that diablo cody obviously dealt with a lot of criticism from the film community because it was considered bizarre because it was at the time a really bizarre take on horror but this is where it really gets to almost the amount of misogyny you see in the movie and the treatment of megan fox you see in the movie it was on and off screen not by necessarily the people who made jennifer's body but the treatment that she was receiving in the film community as a whole at the time. So Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama attribute the film's lack of commercial success to the studio's marketing strategy. Like I said earlier, the perceived demographic of horror movies is young men, so they targeted young men. Even if you look at the cover art of the film, it's Megan Fox in this schoolgirl outfit with a blackboard behind her, and you know she's got like the hiked-up socks and a short skirt. The cover of the movie is not indicative to what the film is actually about Mm -hmm. whatsoever. It makes her look like she's this horny teacher. I don't even think I see her in that outfit. No, she doesn't exist in that outfit in the film at Mm -hmm. all. If you look at any of the promotional material, I mean, there's some where she's covered in blood and that's obviously 
pretty relevant to the film, but a lot of the images that were used to market the film were not reflective of what the movie was actually going to be about, which leads to some of the confusion when it came to the reviews. So Cody claims that the test audience consisted of people who either A, really liked Juno, or B, were the expected demographic of a horror film, which is the 18 to 24-year-old men expecting to see something really specific out of Megan Fox, especially due to her performance in Transformers, where, again, she's shot in a very sexualized way and she was played love interest to Shia LaBeouf. So it was obviously like people were really seeing her in like a certain light at the time. The hypersexualization of Megan Fox was very apparent in the movie's marketing strategy just due to some of the ways the all-male marketing team wanted to use her. Karen Kusama recalls that in order to try to capitalize on her rising popularity and, and status as a sex symbol, the studio wanted to promote the film by having her do live video chat on an amateur porn website to market Jennifer's body. I feel like especially paired with the content of the movie and what it has kind of grown to mean over the years and continued like the third wave of feminism in the Me Too movement. Like I just feel like that is so ironic and so completely opposite of what the movie is trying to do. It misses the point completely. And you can tell that's what happens when you put a marketing team together full of men who aren't really seeing the message of the movie. Even when Diablo Cody was really trying to sell this marketing strategy of like who this audience should really be consisting of, she asked the marketing team, well, what do you think the value of this movie is? And the guy wrote back, Megan Fox hot. That's it. And this is not to say that an amateur pornography site can't be empowering. Obviously, it is. But for the sake of movie promoting, I don't really think that it does the job in this case. And not consulting Megan Fox on whether this is something she'd be thrilled to do. Uh, Thankfully, Karen Kusama was like, we're not even going to approach her with that. Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely not. Also, her character is in high school. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's all a different type of fetishizing. Mm -hmm. That's a little like... Illegal. Illegal and strange. (laughs) So this obviously reflected in the test screenings. It was really disliked by men and a lot of the perceptions were just negative because they didn't get what they wanted out of Megan Fox. Diablo Cody recalls that she has a comment card that just says three words, not enough boobs. So obviously when you put a movie in front of an audience that's not meant to appreciate the content of the film apart from who is acting in the film it's not going to succeed. So I found a really interesting article called How Jennifer's Body Went from a Flop in 2009 to a Feminist Cult Classic Today by Constance Grady. And in terms of how it was perceived, she writes, It was viewed as a sex romp for straight teen boys, and as such, it was a failure. Right at the height of simultaneous cultural backlash to Diablo Cody, who wrote the smart, sad, hyper-stylized screenplay, and Megan Fox, who stars as the titular Jennifer. In 2009, Cody was considered a gimmicky one-hit wonder who was way too precious with her made-up slang, and Fox was considered a vapid Maxim girl who best qualified to wash a car in a bikini in the Transformers movies. So when Jennifer's body came out, there was a ready-made narrative waiting for it. The script was trying too hard, it was too sexualized, or maybe not sexy enough. It was trashy, an empty B-movie with delusions of grandeur. Wow, that's pretty rough. It's terrible, but she really sets that up in such a way where Diablo Cody did really well with Juno. 
And she got a lot of fame for it. And she got the props that she deserved because Juno is a wonderful film. And then Megan Fox has this reputation that preceded her because she's been hypersexualized by the media. So when you put those two things together, of course, it kind of had a stage that was ready to fall apart in front of it, especially when you don't prop it up with the audience that it was meant for. I'm going to try to put my thoughts together on this. I think that idea of a dialogue previously existing before the movie even really hit theaters is so interesting because so many times with women, and not to say that, you know, it's not the case for many situations, but with women, oftentimes so many stories already exist before women get the chance to tell theirs the way that they want to tell it, the way that it happened for them. And I think that it's really interesting that in a movie that already seems to be trying to shed light on that fact, the film is met with the very same thing it's trying to kind of bring to the surface. And I'm really glad you put it that way, because that's essentially why I really wanted to bring this to the forefront of the discussion, because people were like, oh, Jennifer's body, there's a cool kissing scene, and she eats boys, that's great, empowering, yay feminism. But really, you're looking at the level of misogyny that the film is trying to critique and trying to address, and it's happening outside the film in the sense where, like, Diablo Cody was like a pariah after this. And even at the time, Megan Fox was getting slander because she was fired from the set of Transformers because Michael Bay, the director of Transformers, was like not treating her well. And she made some disparaging comments about him. And that resulted in members of the crew coming together and writing an open letter that called Megan Fox an unfriendly bitch, trailer trash, and better off as a porn star. And that was the narrative around Megan Fox at the time to the point where she kind of became a recluse. Like she kind of like went away after Jennifer's body for a little bit because her public persona was so tarnished by opinions of men Mm -hmm. all around her. Wow. And it comforts me to know that Megan Fox cites this even to this day as like her favorite role in one of her favorite movies to work on. And I believe even Amanda Seyfried says the same thing. Like, Everyone who made this movie loved making it and loved the process of making it and loved being a part of it because they knew what it was about. But Mm. the second that the narrative was out of their hands Mm. and it became just this like try hard, gratuitous, sexual, stupid B movie. Like, how are you supposed to feel about it when you feel so proud about that? And then Mm -hmm. your your reputation is just getting crucified in every other direction. Like, how are you supposed to feel the same level of pride? But again, 10 years later, this movie has really found like a cult following and really found its audience. And we're able to talk about it for all that it is, especially because of the context that we see how women are treated in society and are still treated in society, but it's being talked about and it's being publicized and it's being respected in a different way. Where in 2009, it was just like, Honey, that's the way it is, and you're going to deal with it if you want to be here. Wow. I am so hyped to be here talking about this right now. I I told you at the beginning before we started recording, Shay asked me my thoughts, and I said, I think this is one of those movies that I'm going to like 10 times more after we talk about it. And already, I just, I love context. (laughs) I just can't get enough of it. Okay. I'm so excited. Mm. So moving on to our ladies. The two that obviously are the most prominent are the character of Jennifer. So Jennifer Check, who is played by Megan Fox, and Anita Lesnicki, and her nickname is Needy. She's referred to as Needy throughout the movie, and we'll talk about that. And she's played by Amanda Seyfried. And I also found it interesting. I read some IMDb trivia Mm -hmm. that Needy was almost Emma Stone, and Jennifer was almost Blake Lively, like before Megan Fox agreed to be in the film. 
Wow. Like, can you imagine how different of a movie it would have been? I... With Blake Lively and Emma Stone? I could see Blake Lively being a blonde Jennifer. I could actually see that. It would have been so different, though. But I don't think it necessarily would have been a bad different. But I do... I like Megan Fox in this role. Oh, yeah. Me too. I think... I agree with Diablo Cody that nobody else really could have played it the way exactly. that, that she did. Are you ready to talk about it? Ready yeah. Ready to go through the movie? Yeah. All right. So how do we open up? So Nee begins the story. She's narrating her story from the inside of a mental health facility or a prison type situation. I'm not entirely sure. She looks pretty hollow. She looks pretty angry, intimidating for sure. We can see her going about her day. At one point, she kicks a doctor in the chest for suggesting that she eats a more balanced diet. And she kind of kickstart the story. You know, she's saying, I haven't always been this way. I'm from Devil's Kettle. And she gets into setting the scene for the story that is to come. It opens up. We're at a pep rally at mm. a high school mm-hmm. of Devil's of Devil's Kettle High School. <laughs> <laughs> Devil's <laughs> Devil's Kettle. Devil's <laughs> uh, Kettle. Devil's Kettle. Devil's Kettle. Devil's Kettle High School. Devil's Kettle just sounds like the antithesis of the Cracker Barrel. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like it just sounds like the rival punk rock late night diner version of the Cracker Barrel. I just kept thinking it sounded like a brand of like popcorn, like Devil's Kettle, like kettle corn. Yeah, but I like yours a lot better. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe there's something to that. So we open it up and Needy is still narrating and she's really talking about, again, my life didn't always used to be this way. I used to be normal or as normal as, you know, one can be under the influence of hormones. And I'm just like, all right, here, here we fucking go. Let's, let's <laughs> buckle up. So it really zooms in on Chip, her boyfriend, who's a drummer in the marching band. So cute. It zooms in on Needy, who's wearing like circular glasses, mm-hmm. almost Harry Potter-esque. And then it zooms in on Megan Fox, who is the head cheerleader and is twirling a flag. And there's a lot of like dialogue here that really sets up that Needy and Jennifer's friendship isn't balanced. So she's saying, like, people can't believe that a babe like Jennifer would be friends like me, but sandbox love never dies. And I'm paying attention to that language, like babe and love. And it's just like, all right, I don't know how I would have described my lady friendships in high school, but never that amorously because I was a closeted gay at the time. (laughs) I wouldn't have dared be that descriptive. But even while she's narrating this in her head, some girl behind her is like, you're like total lesbian gay for her. <laughs> yeah. And Needy does the, no, we're just best friends. Mm-hmm. But it's really that setting up immediately the context that Needy's adoration and really willingness to prop up the friendship is very similar to the sisterhood we see in Ginger Snaps where... Mm-hmm. Bridget will really do anything to make Ginger happy and really just wants to be in Ginger's good graces and really wants to just be seen as her number one. And then Mm -hmm. obviously throughout that movie, we see her lose that spot as number one and like what the fallout is. And we see like a very similar dynamic occur throughout the movie here with Jennifer and Needy. It almost sets it up like a burgeoning love interest in any rom-com. Like, do you agree? Yes. 
where it's like, no, we're just best friends. Giggle, giggle, hee hee. But like, it's yes. just, no. Yeah. From the beginning, there's like a very subtle undertone of attraction, like beyond a friendship attraction, but something in addition. And of course, this is a high school setting. It's going to be teeming with that sort of energy anyway. But between two best friends, I think it makes this story kind of gripping from the start, especially with that dialogue in the beginning, like you're totally lesbian gay for her and blah, blah, blah. Like it brings it to the audience's attention right away. Especially even setting up the dynamic of like, hottie and nerd you know what i mean and also the shots of jennifer cheerleading are in slow motion oh yeah they're very shot intentionally very the way that you would see like through the eyes of somebody looking at somebody they adore or appreciate or that they are seeking after but it's through needy's perspective and that's a really good point because the shots of chip are very short and they're not in the same like adoration where chip is needy's boyfriend But Jennifer's right. It has that slow motion. It almost has Mm -hmm. that like level of just rose colored glasses. Exactly. That is interesting. Later in the day, Needy and Jennifer have a class together and Jennifer is saying, oh my gosh, this band Low Shoulder is coming to town tonight. They're playing at this dive bar. We have to go. We have to go. Needy says, I have plans with Chip tonight. You know, I told him we'd hang out. Jennifer's like, cancel. And Needy does. So she cancels her plans with Chip. And they decide that they're going to see this band Low Shoulder at the dive bar. And that's kind of the action that, yeah, yeah, I would really say kind of kicks off everything that happens afterwards. Yeah. So it goes from that hallway scene where Needy agrees to ditch Chip for Jennifer. And then we see Needy in her bedroom with Chip and she's trying on a bunch of different outfits. And Needy has this this internal dialogue of like, Jennifer told me to look cute, but cute means I can't upstand her. So cute means I can show my shoulders, but but never my cleavage. And I have to look cute, but not upstage her and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Chip is like sulking on the bed (laughs) and being like, you don't even have anything in common with her. But Jennifer arrives and they go downstairs and the first line out of her mouth is like, it smells like Thai food in here. Have you two been fucking? Oh, my gosh. And it just, again, sets this tone for this very quippy dialogue. And I appreciated that they showed the tension between Chip and Jennifer existing with one another. Because I don't know if you've ever been in this position. Well, you know for a fact I've been in this position just because of me in college. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like when you see that little dance back and forth of like who loves her more, mm-hmm. where it's like I'm her best fucking friend and your relationship with her is completely conditional. Thus, your relationship <laughs> with me is completely conditional. Fuck you. <laughs> She's going to figure out you're not shit in a couple months and I'm still going to be here. So like forget it. And that's the dance that Jennifer and Chip are doing with one another where mm-hmm. they're like, fighting but never that seriously but i like that there's almost a level of jealousy like a mutual jealousy of like who loves needy more there Mm -hmm. that's a really good way to put it it is kind of like a dance because you never want to go so far as to upset the person that you both are seeking the affections of that you both had a relationship with whether it's from the friend standpoint or the partner standpoint but yeah it is like a dance and you're right they do show that from the beginning yeah, and as they're walking to the car, Jennifer's like, you're jello, you're lime green jello, and you don't even know what to do with yourself about <laughs> it, or, or something like that. <laughs> and it's just like the jealousy doesn't have to do with that. He's not going to this concert. The jealousy is that Jennifer has more sway over needy and she knows it. This is interesting to consider. One of the things I thought about with this movie was the idea of envy and ways that envy kind of comes through for women as opposed to men. 
And I think jealousy is kind of a very masculine emotion. It's quick, it's intense, and it can sometimes be resolved with just kind of a change of mindset or like a punch in the face and then moving on with your life. But envy, I think in a lot of ways can be calculated, it can be undetected. And even though we see Jennifer call Chip jealous, your lime green jello, blah, blah, blah. There are scenes later on in the movie that imply that perhaps Jennifer herself had been experiencing envious feelings. So it is kind of ironic in that way. 100%. But Jennifer and Needy arrive at this dive bar where this band from MySpace is playing. (laughs) And here we drop a lot of the cast. So she goes in and there's boys like adoring Jennifer left, right, you know, complimenting her, one of which is a football player at the high school and another one which is this cadet in the police academy who seems a little older, but it's revealed through dialogue that they've hooked up before. Is he the one played by Chris Pratt? Yes, that's Chris Pratt. (laughs) Chris Pratt pre-Parks and Rec. Yes. Yeah, there's some like unsavory 2009 dialogue where she's just kind of like looking around and objectifying some of the dudes there with some not some cool language, but it's 2009, whatever. And Diablo Cody is actually in this scene. She plays the bartender. Oh! She makes the the 9-11 tower shots. Oh my gosh. Again, 2009 humor. It's It's a lot. But we introduce Adam Brody. He's back from Ready or Not, which was actually our last episode, which is pretty funny because yeah, it's been a couple that months. Was Adam Brody. Yeah. Adam Brody plays an eyeliner clad lead singer of an alternative band called uh-huh. Low Shoulder. Mm-hmm. And Megan Fox kind of marches right up to the stage with Needy by her side and is like, oh, I'm going to like your band. <laughs> um, you know, you play your instruments really good. And you, and- <laughs> She literally says that. And she's flustered. And this is like one of the few times you really see her flustered. She is obviously like really captivated by Adam Brody because he's this older like lead singer. Like, of course you are. And that's Mm -hmm. where like you don't want to blame. Like, of course, there's no room in this script to blame Jennifer for what ends up happening because, yeah, of course, she's a teenage girl. And of course, teenage girls are going to fawn over lead singers of punk bands. And what I found is really interesting is if you look at a lot of the bedroom scenes, needy's bedroom and chip's bedroom and jennifer's bedroom like jennifer's bedroom has a fallout boy and a good charlotte poster and chip's bedroom has like a motion city soundtrack and a four-year strong so obviously it's showing that this culture is very important to them just through these subtle means Mm. but this is where needy's like this dude's older like you really think he's gonna do anything with you jennifer's like they're just boys morsels we have all the power don't you know that and then she grabs her chest and is like These things, these are like smart bombs. You point them in the right direction and shit gets real. So this is setting the precedent that she believes or she's in the belief that women have the sexual power Mm. in most every encounter. And you're seeing that. She walks into the bar and she commands this attention. She has the quarterback. She has this older police academy cadet. She has the bartender. Mm -hmm. She's underage. She has the black axe on her hand, but she's getting drinks and being served and all this kind of stuff. Like in this community and in this small town setting that she's in, she harnesses enough sexual power to get what she wants. But that's a different narrative than we see in a lot of other movies. That's a really good point. And I think that it's really interesting paired with the band that she is so interested in because they aren't just an unconscious go with the flow sort of band. Like they are manipulative and they have some, I think, social traps set just to ensnare somebody like Jennifer. Mm -hmm. So 
After she goes away to get the red, white, and blue shooters, Needy sort of steps off to the side. She's waiting for Jennifer. She doesn't want to talk to those boys on her own. She's playing some kind of game, right? And she hears the Adam Brody lead singer talk to, I guess, his drummer or like backup singer or whatever about like, yo, dude, like maybe this girl, dude, she's definitely a virgin. And then Needy comes back around and is like, my friend is a virgin. Don't talk about her that way. And then she walks away and they both kind of look at each other as though they had known she was an earshot and would come to sort of corroborate whatever story they needed to hear, which was that Jennifer was a virgin. Right. And that's where Needy goes back up to Jennifer as she's carrying her shooters back mm-hmm. to the lead singer. And she's like, don't talk to him. He's creepy. Like, he's only into you because he thinks you're a virgin. And Jennifer's like, I'm not even a backdoor virgin anymore. <laughs> Which, I mean, great, awesome. But the band starts singing a song that you will hear many, many times. So many times. So many times throughout the rest of this film. It's called Through the Trees. I had this song on my iPod Touch in middle school. I can't with you. (laughs) I I know. But if you watch this movie, you're going to hear this song over and over and over again. And it was a fun fact that I learned that every member of the band was part of an actual band. Oh. Except Adam Brody. Mm. So he was playing like the hot lead singer or whatever. But the rest of the members of the band were part of an actual band. So they're singing through the trees and there's a scene where Jennifer grabs Needy's hand as the band is playing and she looks at Jennifer and looks at the lead singer who's really like making eyes with Jennifer and like really singing into her soul and Needy like throws her hand away and it's just kind of jealous of just like, Mm. what are you doing? I don't want to be complicit in this. You're being silly or it's just like, I don't understand what you see in him. Mm. You know, that is really interesting because it could be both. I could see both. Absolutely. Shortly after the song starts playing, after Needy kind of throws Jennifer's hands down, we see her kind of looking around. She's sort of disenchanted with the band playing now. And we see a fire sort of start and follow kind of like the line of the the wall, the curtain. And then eventually it just gets out of control really, really fast. Like next thing you know, the whole room is ablaze and parts of the scaffolding are falling. People are screaming. People are, are kind of trapped inside based on where they were. And Needy is actually able to grab Jennifer and pull her through the bathroom and then out the window to the outside area as the entire building burns to the ground. And you get the impression that the band in some way had something to do with it. Yes, I didn't pick up on that at this point. I was just thinking, okay, well, like random that this fire started, but later you do, which is another reason why it seems as though this band is not just full of guys derping around, but a lot more calculating, dangerous people who are more manipulative. You can kind of tell they're not as concerned as they should be because Jennifer and Needy make make it outside. They're both very disoriented. And the lead singer pops right up. He was just on stage and he pops right up with a glass of whiskey. He's like, oh, I've been looking everywhere for you guys. I'm so glad you're safe. Jennifer is in shock. She's not speaking. She doesn't really know what to do with herself. And Nikolai is the name of the lead singer. Pushes a glass of whiskey in her face and starts lifting up the bottom so that she gulps this whiskey and is like, here, like this will take the edge off. And Needy's protesting. She's like, no, no, like she's fine. I'll take her home. I'll take her home. And he's just like, listen, I'm in survival mode. And when I'm in survival mode, I just want to go to a place that's familiar. And right now that's my van. So let's go to my van and we'll all be good. And Jennifer's like, yeah, let's go to his cool van. 
And <laughs> Needy's like, uh, no, we're going to go home. You have your car here. Like, we have a way to get home. Let's go home. But Nikolai ends up dragging Jennifer by the hand and loading her into the van. And Needy really can't do anything about it. And Jennifer seems into it. But there's like a shot of Jennifer right before the van door closes mm-hmm. on her where you kind of see a moment of regret where of like, wait, what did I just get myself into? Right. But Needy is forced to drive home alone and Jennifer rolls off with the band in their van. I was watching this with someone. I didn't get to watch this movie with Shay this time around, but the person I was watching this movie with was sort of angry. Like, why would Needy let Jennifer get into this car? But I think that the movie does a really good job sort of setting up that weird ground that Needy stands on between, you know, trying to be protective versus ultimately kind of being second, sort of subordinate in some of these situations. It's like... Jennifer wants to do this thing, I should let Jennifer do this thing. But also, this isn't a good thing. And then you can just kind of see her deadlocked in the situation, just like we see Jennifer deadlocked in the situation, kind of being starstruck by this band. I mean, I think we've all been in this situation where like pre-COVID, obviously, you're at like a bar with a friend or a group of friends and you know your friend is hammered and your friend's like maybe making out with this guy in the corner and (laughs) wants to go home with this dude and you're like uh let's go get you some french fries and go to sleep and sleep this off but she's like no i want to go home with him Mm -hmm. no i want to go home with him and you're like okay i know what you want but you're also really drunk right now and i don't know what you want because you can't consent to anything right now but i'm not going to be the bad friend that like drags you away from like a hookup and shit like that so i think it's a really poignant way of like the situations that we're even put in as women of Mm -hmm. like wanting your friend to have a good time and advocating for your friend and like wanting her to just kind of live her best life and have fun but at the same time not having that like mama bear instinct of like Mm -hmm. would you be doing this if you're sober Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. and because i don't know i don't want you to do this but i also don't want you yelling at me tomorrow morning right right Yeah, we cut to the next scene. Needy makes it home. She's on the phone with Chip, kind of explaining to him what happened. It was crazy. She hears a knock at the door. She goes downstairs to inspect. No one's there. So she says, you know what, Chip, it's fine. You know, no one's here. I'm going to go. So she says goodbye to Chip. And then we kind of see this look across her face that she kind of senses someone's in the house. And we've seen her have this moment before early in the movie when she's still upstairs in her room with Chip. And all of a sudden she says, Jennifer's here. And Chip's like, how do you know? And then we hear we hear her kind of call up the stairs. So we already kind of have this established idea that Needy can kind of sense when Jennifer is around, which I kind of love this kind of supernatural sixth sense sort of situation. And we see her have that look come across her face again. She's looking around. Next thing you know, she's in the kitchen, turns around, and there is Jennifer standing in the kitchen. And I want to point out just a little thing that at this point, we have not seen any parents in this movie. We get the impression that Needy's being raised by a single mom, a dad is not in the picture, and that she's picking up like a swing shift. So you could tell that there's like a little bit of socioeconomic disbalance, a level of hardship to her lifestyle, maybe in comparison to Jennifer's. And I also like wanted to point out that as she goes to open the door to like check if somebody's at the door, you get a close up shot of her wrist and she's wearing those jelly bands that people wore in 2000. The animal ones? No, 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 no. Not the animal ones. The just like thin latex. That kind of had like some sparkles in them sometimes. Sometimes. But they had different colors and they connotated to like different. Do you remember this? Like in like middle school and high school. Oh, they meant certain things about like what you've done. Yes, 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 yes. And you would like link them in with each other and they almost look like an infinity symbol. You wrap them around your neck. But like I can't stress how like as much of a thing that was, especially with like counterculture, where it's Uh like you would have these different colored like rubber bands on your wrist and they all had different colors and the lighter colors meant 
hug, kiss. <laughs> and then like the black colors were like sex. And the idea was if you had done that thing or you were seeking that thing, you would wear those specific colors. And I don't know what the lore was, but like in my high school, it was if somebody could break that band off of you, it means you did that with them. I have heard that yeah. before. And black was sex. So black was like the hardest to rip, but like hug or kiss was like really elastic. So you could rip that a lot easier. But oh my God. I took notice because just because I've seen this movie five times at this point, but I took <laughs> notice that Needy had light colored ones oh. on. Like she, I think she did have some black on there, but the ones at the forefront of her wrists were yellow and orange, which I believe were like hug and kiss. That doesn't mean anything, but I just wanted to bring that up in terms of just the attention to like what was going on at the time. Wasn't there also like the monster tab color thing? Was that a thing? I don't know. We have a friend named Linda. <laughs> Shout out to Linda. We love you. We love you. I swear to God, Linda has a story about one time she had every single color of like a monster tab on a necklace that she could wear. And that meant something? I don't know. I should ask her to retell the story. I know people did that with like Starburst wrappers too, though. Well, my friend Paige, we all remember silly bands. Paige used to match her silly band to her hair tie, which she would match to her outfit. So if Paige had on a blue t-shirt, she would have a blue hair tie and a blue silly band. I feel like Paige is going to be mad at you for for mentioning this. (laughs) You get what you deserve, Paige. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I thought it was funny as hell. I made fun of her at the time for it, so she's used to it by now. (laughs) Anyway, silly bands and sex bands aside, yes. Needy whips around and Jennifer's there. And Jennifer, you know what this reminded me of? The scene in It Follows in the kitchen. Oh, shit. Yes. Like, it reminded me of, like... I know that scene really like really hurts but like (laughs) but like Jennifer I mean she is fully clothed the woman in it follows isn't fully clothed but Jennifer is really bloodied she's bruised she doesn't look good like she looks like she's been she's seen some shit been through some shit she's got blood all over her but Jennifer is like smiling and her mouth is all bloody and Jennifer becomes very animalistic and she just like goes to the fridge and starts eating rotisserie chicken and like, yeah. gagging and he's like i don't think my mom like wanted me to eat that <laughs> but like you can tell how subservient needy is because mm-hmm. she's like we got that from boston market my mom said i wasn't supposed to eat it yeah with her company but not authoritatively at all but jennifer like growls and like screams this like monster scream and needy's crying she's very upset she's confused she's like what happened to you what happened to you and jennifer like vomits this black bile like all over the kitchen mm-hmm. almost kind of like similar to how bridget and ginger snaps pukes at the end oh, yeah like just like spelling like a lot of stuff but jennifer she's not distressed she's giggling she's giddy mm-hmm. so at this point needy's freaked the fuck out and tries to like run but jennifer And this gets a little suggestive because Jennifer, with like supersonic speed, throws her against the wall, has her body against her, and leads her hand up her chest and like over her breast to her neck and is like, are you scared? (laughs) And he's like crying and she's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And Jennifer goes to like put her lips on her neck, either to like bite her or that's the thing you don't know whether she's gonna bite her mm-hmm. or kiss her which is like a tension that's like so specific and so like interesting mm-hmm. but something that i've noticed on my like fifth watch at this time <laughs> is that it was revealed earlier that jennifer and needy have bff necklaces and mm-hmm. jennifer sees the chain of the bff necklace and that stops her <gasps> but like on your first watch you would never see that you right. would never notice that but she sees that gold chain and then she like 
gets revolted and like throws her against the wall again and then just runs out the Mm -hmm. door so next day needy goes to school and jennifer is normal she looks great she's gorgeous she's glowing she walks into class plops right down next to needy in their science table and of course needy is super shocked she's like do you remember anything about last night jennifer's like what are you talking about needy shows her her nail beds that are still stained with the black puke that she spent hours cleaning up. You know, Jennifer is not really reacting. And either before or as the scene is going on, we are also seeing this community sort of mourning the loss of all the lives and the fire the night before. And these two girls have also adopted a little bit of stardom because they were there and they survived. So there's some celebrity status that goes on because of that. And as a result... The band, Low Shoulder, who is playing, has also gained a lot of popularity. But something I did want to mention about this scene is, like, Jennifer's gaslighting the fuck out of Needy. True, that's pretty fucked up. Because they're sitting at this table, and Jennifer's like, what are you talking about? Like, oh my god, you're so dramatic. Why are you blowing this out of proportion? And the teacher is retelling, like, all the people who died, and Jennifer, like, can't stop giggling. Like, she's almost acting like how we see teen boys acting toward moments of tragedy. Uh, You know, and I'm not trying to make a generalization here, but if you look in film, if you look in movies, and you're a high school teacher, so maybe you can attest to this, where it's like something bad happens and you try to make a teachable moment out of it, and Mm -hmm. there's always like some class clown asshole type that needs to like make it edgy. And this is where I noted that the more confident that Jennifer is, the more cruel she is to needy. Because if you look at it, she only dragged Needy to the concert because she was nervous about the band. And while the band was playing, she grabs her hand and like is really wanting her there, wanting her there. But the second that Needy is reaching out for the same level of emotional support of like, hey, this happened to us last night and I'm really upset and you scared me. And like, can we talk through this? She's just like... God, Needy, you're so dramatic. Really just like gaslighting her. You're getting the sense that this is like a really toxic friendship. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So after the class is over, they go into the hallway and Needy is with Chip and trying to like explain to him what happened that night after they got off the phone and all the things that occurred. They run into another character called Colin who so would have been my heartthrob in high school. uh, Yeah. Like, he is, like, Hot Topic's poster boy, Mm -hmm. wearing a lot of chains. He writes poetry. Oh, my God. (laughs) He seems like the type to get, like, a Poe tattoo at 17. Um, hell yeah. Yeah, he kind of comes around. He's like, hey, Needy, uh, I'm really glad you're alive and that you didn't die in that fire or something like that. She's like, thanks, Colin. And we can see that, you know, Needy, Needy doesn't seem any more enthralled with Colin than she is with Chip. But we can see that Needy, you know, thinks that Colin is cute. She appreciates him. And, and Chip's a little jealous. Chip is a little bit jealous, but whatever. That's important because Colin comes up again later. He does. We are introduced to another character named Jonas, and he is a football player, and he lost his best friend in the fire the night before. The guy who, when they first entered the bar, tried to hit on Jennifer, and he ended up dying in the accident. So you see Jonas, he's like standing on the football field being very pensive and mourning. And we even saw him like openly weeping in the class earlier, which Mm -hmm. I I even wrote down as like, Jennifer's the one cracking jokes and he's openly weeping. Mm -hmm. So like, talk about a change in gender. Interesting. But Jennifer walks right up to him and really exploits his grief in a gross way. 
Yeah, she's saying, oh, you know, like, I was there last night. Your friend said that we would be really good together. She's very kind of coming on to him as if it was like his best friend's dying wish that they should hook up. So they go into the woods and that's what they start to do. They start making out and then all these animals start watching. Just like this. We see a crow fly into the screen, which is like telltale sign that somebody's about to die. Ooh, good eye. I didn't see that. Yeah, but while they're hooking up, Jennifer's like, do you miss him? And like really just like trying to get him upset. Uh He's like, like, of course I do. She's like, well, you're going to see him real soon. And then she kind of metamorphosizes into this monster that we'll talk about a little bit later Mm -hmm. and bites him and kills him yeah and we kind of have this aerial shot where we hear jonas screaming from the woods and there's a teacher who's walking to his car at that time and he hears the screams and at first we can kind of see on his face that he's not taking it seriously as if kids are just being kids but then he does take it seriously and he kind of ventures into the woods and then he is ultimately the one that finds jonas's dead body and a murder investigation begins so on top of this town you know losing a location they love and many people to the fire now they have this crazy murder that has happened and no one knows who is the culprit except us the audience (laughs) yes and after this you see jennifer swimming naked in a lake Mm -hmm. of course i think this was the we need to give the boys something and megan fox is doing breaststroke in the lake and you know emerges naked and steam is coming off her body you don't see anything but i mean she's naked she's shown in a a sexualized way a little bit i guess she's supposed to be maybe cleaning herself off i'm sure she can't just walk down the street in broad daylight with all of this blood on her body After that, Jennifer calls Needy at night, and this is where you get that iconic tongue lighter scene. Oh. Where Jennifer's like, I feel so hot. I feel great. I've been having the best day since Jesus invented the calendar. Like, she's (laughs) just, like, very great, where Needy's still very much like, um, I'm in shock. I'm very upset. What I found was significant about this was Chip calls her and she puts Jennifer on hold to talk to Chip. Mm -hmm. We start to see a little bit of a shift of like, I'm a little sick of you and I don't really like how you're treating me. Yeah. I mean, and you made that point that in this scene, you know, Needy wasn't really getting what she wanted from Jennifer. You know, they're in completely different emotional places. So, of course, she's going to end that conversation with Jennifer and, and seek somebody who might be able to give her more of what she needs at that time. When Chip calls, he's saying like, hey, can you come over? I need to talk to you. So Needy goes to talk to him. And turns out Jonas was his neighbor. So he found out that Jonas had been killed in the woods and he needed some emotional support. And I found it funny because she offers him her jacket. So that, again, <laughs> the, there's just some like fun gender roles there. And But again, it's really starting to show Jennifer like, okay, now you're playing second fiddle because mm. I'm not accepting the way you're treating me anymore. And I even think that the dialogue that that create sometimes of you're choosing your boyfriend over me like or you're choosing your partner over me where it's like no how about i can identify that somebody's treating me well and i think that this movie hit me so relevant of just like almost the obligation to keep a friendship because it's been since your childhood Mm -hmm. but knowing that that person doesn't serve the same purpose in your life anymore but feeling that sense of loyalty to them 
And I think this does happen to a lot of people in high school of like, mm-hmm. you finally get to realize like, you're actually kind of a shitty person or you're not the person that you were when I was friends with you and I don't owe you anything. So I'm going to seek other company. But that tends to result in other people making you feel like shit for making that decision. Right. That is a really good point. The next day rolls around. Yeah, we're back in school. Of course, we see the shrine of Jonas. The town is now grieving his loss. And this is when we start to catch wind that Low Shoulder is doing very well. And their song, Through the Trees, has just skyrocketed. The band is very successful. They're well known. And they're going to come play at the spring formal of the school. And 5% of their proceeds are going to go towards... Three. 3%. Three. <laughs> yeah. 3%. Which is like not their- a lot. Yeah, because Needy's like, what about the other 97? Yeah, and they're being, yeah, and they're being harrowed as like town heroes because they supposedly went in the fire and helped save lives, which we know is complete bogus because we saw them drinking whiskey outside of the burning building and kidnapping Jennifer in a van. So obviously, if it wasn't clear before or if you weren't getting inklings before, it's very obvious that this fire might have been just a giant publicity stunt to launch their career and get a lot of money. Right. And it's important to note at this point that we don't know what happened to Jennifer at this point. No, we just know that she was in a van with the band and she came back bloody. Like Mm -hmm. we don't we don't really know. And I'm going to talk a little bit later just kind of about that parallel about like this band got rich and famous off of their abuse of women and the ability to do that, like how the subjection and objectification of a woman caused the skyrocketing of this person's career. I mean, at the time that we're recording this, it's really close to the break of the news around Evan Rachel Wood and Marilyn Manson, just about the abuse allegations and the uh, multiple abuse allegations towards Marilyn Manson about the level of abuse and sexual assault and a bunch of like terrible, terrible stuff. And the fact that he was able to maintain this like really elevated career at the expense of other women's talent and other women's silence because of the abuse. And this is showing that, that like people of influence and people of fame are able to maintain this due to the suppression of the women in their lives. And not always, of course, but just the shitty ones, maybe. Right. Mm -hmm. And the idea in our culture that to be famous makes you almost godlike, which I also think makes Jennifer's monologue about I am God, I am delicious, all the more interesting because we do find out what happens and we'll get there. But obviously she was in the oppressed seat when she was taken into that van, which we can assume when she comes back bloodied and completely different. But you know, she's on this other side, kind of empowered. And even though, you know, weird shit's going on, there has been a marked change, which is interesting. What's also important about this scene is while they're remarking low shoulder success, Jennifer is looking very sickly. She's not looking well. She looks just weathered and sick and just not as vibrant or into it. And they say that it's been one month since the tragedy and one month since the accident. Mm -hmm. So again, we're kind of talking about this monthly cycle like we talked about in Ginger (laughs) Snaps where she ate these boys in the beginning of the month and toward the end of the month, she's looking a little weathered and needy even calls attention to it. it's like hey you you don't look good and you look tired which every fucking woman knows is like okay you might as well slap me across the face and tell me i'm ugly as fuck <laughs> <laughs> but seriously though, 
I almost appreciate that it was exactly like you look tired. Yeah. Like I'm like you look fine, but you look tired. Even she says it. She's like, I hate to say this, but like she knows what she's gonna say, and it is of concern. Sometimes you know when somebody looks tired, it is concerning. But sometimes, it, I mean, look, we've all been there. We've all been told we look tired. <laughs> But Jennifer is just like, it's just wearing off or something. And Needy's like, what? She's like, nothing. So they go strut in the hallway together. And in comes Colin again, being like, hi, Needy. Hi, Jennifer. And you could tell that Colin's into Jennifer. And again, a boy after my own heart asks Jennifer out on a date to go see Rocky Horror Picture Show. And what the fuck does she say? She's like, I'm not into boxing movies. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he's just like, Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. That's a really good date idea. I'm not forcing like movies together on the first date, but Rocky Horror is different. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so Colin's like, fuck this and goes to walk away. But this is what's significant is Needy goes, well, I think Colin's a cool guy. And Jennifer's like, oh, you do? And she's like, yeah, I do. He's really nice. And then Jennifer calls Colin back and was like, why don't you just come over tonight? I just rented Aquamarine. We can watch that together. But you can tell that Jennifer only called Colin back because she perceived Needy being into Colin. Yes. They buttoned up their exchange, but at that point, Needy had separated herself from Jennifer to go talk to Chip. And Jennifer turns around almost to see Needy's reaction to her solidifying a date with Colin and Needy is making out with Chip. Mm. And Jennifer gets really like... I mean, I don't want to say outwardly. I'm I'm obviously reading into it, but like she only locked Colin down as a date because yes. of Needy's perceived interest. The movie makes that clear. But then as Needy's watching this go down, she pulls Chip in for a makeout session so she knows that Jennifer will see it. <gasps> oh no, because at this point she's watching them do that. And then Chip's just trying to talk to her like normal. And she's like, come here and starts making out with him. And because she doesn't do that. Like, she doesn't like. Wow. So they're both playing cards oh, against each other. Exactly that. They're just kind of like going back and forth. And they're playing this game of who can make the other one more jealous. Again, it's just like this tension is rising between the two of them. Not exactly desire. I don't want to pinpoint it as that. Although we see evidence of that later. But she looks to Needy for a reaction. And then Needy provides a different reaction to Jennifer. And Jennifer like rolls her eyes. It's just this jealousy cycle. So scene cuts. We have Colin. He's driving down the street with his little GPS. He's on his way to go see Jennifer. It's intercut with this really cute scene with Needy and Chip. And Needy and Chip are kind of about to get it on. They're going to have sex. She takes her glasses off. And that's like the sign. And there was mentioning earlier, he mentioned to her, like, I got more condoms. So, like, they're going to have sex. And I don't think this is their first time, right? Is it their? No, I didn't get the sense it was the first time. Because he was like, I got more condoms. But anyway, they they're cute and they kind of have some giggles, and I love I love that. I'm a, I'm a sucker for like a couple giggles and like a cute little sex scene. And it's intercut with Colin breaking into this abandoned house. Yeah, because as he's driving down the street to get to this address, slowly the lights start to go out, and he finds himself in this like under construction part of the neighborhood, like a developing development. And he pulls up in front of a house that has one light in the upper window. That's supposedly the address Jennifer lives at. And so he breaks into the house, as you said, which is puzzling. But also interesting because a lot of times in horror movies, I get pissed because women ignore red flags. In this movie, I get pissed because the the guys don't acknowledge red flags. And in this case, I wanted to be like, Colin, (laughs) this is an abandoned house. Like, this is creepy as shit. Like, go home. 
But he does break in and <laughs> he sees a bunch of candles lit. And in the background, I Want to Love You by Akon is playing. <laughs> but also, like, there's a bunch of candles on the chainsaw table. Or not the chainsaw, like a like a table saw. Oh, well, look, guys, look. <laughs> so, we don't work in construction. Listen to me. <laughs> listen to me. Listen to me. I said the same thing when I was watching this movie with the person I was watching. It with. I was like, there's a chainsaw. And he was like, where? I was like, oh, shit. I mean, a table saw. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know my saws. So also with this abandoned house made me read in again to the fact that at this point, there's been very little parental involvement. We see a slight scene earlier with Needy's mom, but you can tell that it's strained and a little absent. She leads him to an abandoned house and you could say it's for murder, but maybe it's a little bit of an allegory for the level of parental support or whatever. And she says to Colin, so she ends up like appearing behind Colin and he's like, what the hell's going on? She's like, no, like I picked this house out just for us. We can play mommy and daddy. (laughs) So like, is that trying to read into the like narrative that if a girl is sexually active under the age of 18, then she has to have... Mm -hmm. issues like mommy daddy issues like is that what that's saying that's very interesting as much as i didn't want it to happen jennifer you know ends up seducing colin and then she starts eating him and then he dies it has a hilarious juxtaposition with needy and chips sex scene and i literally made like a versus column in my notes oh Needy and Chip, he's like putting on the condom and she like drops Colin's cargo pants. And then Needy is just like, put it in. And Jennifer says to Colin, nice hardware ace. <laughs> Very different situations. And then while Chip and Needy are having sex, she sees a vision of Jennifer poised almost like a gargoyle, just very sinister-like behind Jonas's shoulder, which puts together the story that she was responsible for Jonas's death. And she's seeing this while she's having sex with Chip. So she's like crying out and Chip thinks it's because he's pleasuring her, but she's actually scared. So he stops and is like, am I too big? Oh my God. It's actually really cute though. The way he says it, am I too big? (laughs) Like... (laughs) But that is juxtaposed with Jennifer breaking Colin's wrists and saying, I need you frightened. I need you helpless. So again, flip the gender in any other horror movie where it's like the aggressor is a man and the victim is a woman and the aggressor is trying so hard to provoke intimidation, to provoke this sadistic sense of terror. And she even says that with Needy earlier in the movie, and she tries to get Jonas into that earlier in the thing, where it's just like, I need you hopeless. I need you helpless. I need you frightened. Because that's what gives her pleasure at this time, or that's mm-hmm. what allows her to feed. Mm-hmm. So either way, this premonition or this vision causes Needy to leave Chip's house. And while she's driving away from Chip's house, she sees Jennifer bloody in the road and Jennifer like jumps on her windshield and cracks it. It's like this weird situation. Needy comes home and she, it's sad. Like she runs into her house and she's calling for her mom. She's like, mommy, mommy. And in the scene earlier with her mom, she's like, well, you know, one day when you need me, I'm not going to be there and you're going to need to take care of yourself. But again, she's never been there. It's, mm-hmm. she's always been absent. So she's like alone in this house. And she like falls asleep and she dreams of Jennifer and she is kind of realizing that Jennifer's evil, but she goes upstairs. She goes to crawl into bed 
and Jennifer's in bed waiting for her. Yeah. And she's like, hey, it just kind of pops up like it's a normal sleepover. She's like, can't we just have a slumber party like we always have? And then Needy kind of gets up. She's yelling at Jennifer to get out. And then Jennifer stands up and they start making out. Yeah, Jennifer like really coyly just kind of rubs up on her, takes her glasses off. And again, like this scene is shot in a way where you're really meant to kind of savor it. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But you see a lot of tongue. And and I'm not going to lie. Like, I'll be honest with the fact that as a burgeoning homosexual watching this movie, I think it's part of the reason I loved it so much at the time, because you're really seeing and and that's the thing they're treating this affection in a way where it's serious like it's objectified in a way but again part of that is because it's amanda seyfried and megan fox like Mm -hmm. like there's that there's that aspect to it but it's also in the fact that it's taking this affection very seriously and it's taking this build up in this intimacy very seriously i would see it as exploitative if you hadn't spent the entire time Mm -hmm. previous to this moment building up to this anticipation Uh, it is a strangely beautiful scene it feels like exactly the right thing that should happen at that time. Jennifer even says, like, do you want to play boyfriend, boyfriend and girlfriend? girlfriend yeah. Like we used to do. So then you kind of get this further context that they maybe have done this before, right? Played boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, and now they're like making out outside of that context, right? Like that was a wild moment. Right. It's not like this wasn't the first time they kissed, but maybe outside of the context of the game. Or like while she had a boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, again, I'm going to test that our friendship means more than like whatever relationship you're going to have. So finally, Needy pulls away and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what, what is this? And that's where like Jennifer's just kind of like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And Needy's like, why are you even here? And she's like, well, I want to talk to you about the night that we went to the concert. And she starts to recount what happens. Yeah, so after Jennifer is in the van with the band, they take her to the namesake of Devil's Kettle, which is a waterfall that kind of empties into this sort of whirlpool that scientists, and this is established early on, don't know where it drains out to. So it just kind of like spirals down. You know, scientists have tried to put cameras down there. They've tried to put like orange neon floaty balls down there to see if they pop out somewhere they've never been able to discover it and in jennifer's telling we know that that's where they take her to this place in nature and they intend to sacrifice her so they kind of start talking about how she's a virgin and she starts corroborating that theory like i'm a virgin you should probably find somebody who would know what they're doing she's trying to kind of well she's trying to save her own life Well, she thinks she's gonna be raped raped. yeah because she even Mm -hmm. says like are you guys rapists and then nikolai's just like i fucking hate girls like oh my god i can't with him but she's seeing a bunch of satanic shit in the back of the van yeah pentagrams books like witchy books candles yeah yeah. shit like that so she is definitely freaked and finally nikolai takes out is it nikolai nikolai Nikolai. Nikolai takes out a big, shiny fucking knife, and he basically murders her with it. That's preceded by some dialogue where he's like, do you know how hard it is to make it as an indie band these days? So the motivation behind sacrificing her 
is the fact that if they sacrifice a virgin, that they will receive success as a band. And you even see some hesitance from other members of the band where he's like, dude, I don't know about this. And he's like, do you want to be working at Moose Hoof Coffee for the rest of your life? Or do you want to be like the guy in Maroon 5? And and they're like, I want to be the guy in Maroon 5. Exactly. <laughs> Adam Brody ends up stabbing her multiple, multiple times as she's screaming. She's very scared. She's very vulnerable. So this is where the narrative converges a little bit because then she said, then I woke up, they were gone and I found my way back to you. But then we see Jennifer's perspective where actually she woke up, but the audience is seeing that she actually saw Ahmet on the street and she's like, does anyone know that you made it out? And he says no. And she ends up taking his hand and leading him into the forest and presumably kills him because she feeds on him. And when we see her the next day, she's like, full she's attractive she's bubbly she's herself and it's assumed that Ahmet had died in the fire but really that was her first victim Mm -hmm. and that's why she was so bloody the night that she ended up seeing needy what's important about this is she ends the story with saying like but they thought I was a virgin and I'm not and now she's like I eat boys and when I do, I feel beautiful and invincible. I'm almost unkillable and she like stabs herself and it heals right away. So she's almost saying that because they tried to do a ritual on a virgin and she wasn't actually a virgin, that she ended up absorbing some demonic power. Mm. And that's why she feeds on boys and that's why she's able to be like almost unkillable when she's full. But when she's not full is when she you know, is weak and and not as attractive and all of those types of things. But at that point, she is full because she had just eaten Colin earlier mm-hmm. that night, which Needy doesn't know. So Needy kicks her out. She jumps out the window. Needy looks out the window and she's gone. Very Michael Myers, supernatural, vanishes from view of the window. The next day, Needy takes a trip to the occult section of the library and she does some research and finds out that Jennifer is a succubus. So I did a little bit of research on what a succubus is. And basically, a succubus is a man-eating demon in the form of a beautiful woman. And this is interesting because when I was watching this movie and when I watched this movie, I was interested in the fact that Jennifer was killing young men who weren't awful. (laughs) They were just like boys, like Colin. He was a cute little poet mini Edgar Allan Poe who didn't marry his cousin and um, you know we had Ahmet and and I was really interested in that because usually when you have a movie about a woman who's killing men there's kind of some element of poetic justice there but I think in my research of a succubus I was given some insight into that so succubi prey specifically on emotionally vulnerable men Hmm. Mm-hmm. Specifically, so in all of those times we see Jennifer like, I want you scared, I need you terrified. Like, she is prepping her victims to be exactly as she needs them. And like with Jonas, when she's bringing up his dead best friend, like, she is prepping him to be exactly where she needs him to be. It is really interesting. And we see that theme again later where she says exactly what she needs to say to break down her victims as much as she possibly can while still keeping them seduced so she can eat them the way that she wants them. It's good that you mentioned that the emotional vulnerability is part of it because it's also interesting in seeing how Devil's Kettle as a community reacts 
reacts to these deaths as they occur. So when the Devil's Kettle fire happens at the bar, you see candlelight vigils. They're singing through the trees as a community. (laughs) And then when you see Jonas die, there's like flowers and a memorial by his locker. But then Needy is really noting that like when Colin died, it was almost like business as usual. Like, of course, we were sad. But what are we going to do? Sorrow was last week's emotion. Mm. So it's almost illustrating the amount of desensitization that people have for crimes against women in society, where it's like, you hear about one thing, and there's an outrage. And then you hear the second story. And it's like, uh, and then you hear the third story. And it's like, almost get over it already, right? But instead, it's happening to young men. I found it really interesting, because over the loudspeaker, speaker in the hallways you hear that they're implementing curfews and buddy systems those are like anti-rape tactics that's like victim blaming tactics Mm -hmm. that people were like oh yeah put the keys between your knuckles or oh yeah get a buddy system and even the night before the dance chip's mom gives him pepper spray where it's like all of a sudden it shifts from this there's a monster in our community to well if you don't protect yourself it's your fault right but they're explicating that so well knowing that the gender is disbalanced like this person isn't after young ladies they're after young men and these emotionally vulnerable young men Mm -hmm. and i like that you pointed out that the succubi that's what they're interested in because jennifer isn't going after the alpha males she's going after these presumably weak dudes even with colin like she didn't respect colin at all like even before colin asked her out jennifer was like he wears nail polish my dick is bigger than his She's targeting these men, presumably because of this like emotional vulnerability in the same way that aggressors go after people who they presume to be more easily victimized. Mm-hmm. Needy does this research and she finds Chip. She kind of drags him to a place in the school and, and confides in him all that she's learned. Jennifer is a succubus. This is what's happening. And Chip doesn't believe her. And we kind of have this sad scene where Needy is saying, Chip, you know, we can't go to the spring formal. Chip is like, I don't understand. Needy is saying, well, I'll go because Jennifer will be there and I need to keep an eye on her. And Chip, I think, pulls even further away from her. So then in an attempt to protect Chip and make sure he stays home, Needy breaks up with Chip, thinking that he won't end up going to the dance. And then we cut to a getting ready montage of sorts. And Needy is dressed up in this hot pink 80s style dress. Her mom helps her do her hair in a big sort of 80s style blowout. And she's wearing colorful eyeshadow. And it's very sad. But she's going to the dance, as she said, to keep an eye on Jennifer. But we also see Chip is getting ready for the dance. And of course, we know... I mean, at this point, I know that something awful is going to (laughs) happen. Because because as the story has gone on, the killings have just gotten closer and closer to needy. And there's a ton of foreshadowing. So anyway, Chip is going to the dance. He decides he's going to walk. And as he's cutting through the park to get to the school, he encounters Jennifer. This is where Needy is at the dance and Low Shoulder is again playing through the trees because at this point, it's like the sixth time you've heard this song. (laughs) And Jennifer finds Chip in the park and they're talking and she's just like, wait, Needy didn't want to go to the dance with you? Shit, she must. Oh my God, oh my God. And Chip's like, what, 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 what? And Jennifer tells Chip that Colin and Needy have been hooking up this entire time. And they've been a thing this entire time and you didn't know. And I felt so bad because I care so much about you, Chip. And you're such a good guy. And again, in true form of a succubus, she is priming him to be exactly what she needs to consume. 
I find it funny because she even says, like, I can't believe she would mess with your head like this as she's doing the same thing. Like, Mm -hmm. she's doing it to get him emotionally vulnerable. And she does seduce him. They end up making out in the woods. And she tries to ask, like, say I'm better than needy. And he's like, no, this is weird. Like, no, I'm not going to say that. But then she's like, all right, well, maybe we just need to go somewhere more private. And she ends up walking him to this pool that is so far away from the school. Ah! This is what is it with me? I was just about to say, what is it with me in horror movies and location of pools that piss me the fuck off? It is a really fucked up pool, and the fact that there is no like high fence around it, keeping people from getting inside and hurting themselves, blows my mind. The pool looks like it's almost in a greenhouse, like in terms of vision tree, like you can like set that up where it almost looks like a greenhouse from the outside. But then when you go inside, there's like this pool and there's all this greenery and it's gross and it's mossy. That has grown through the windows. Yeah, it's gross. And I also found it interesting that when you see the establishing shot of the pool, the word hopeless is written in red <gasps> spray paint on the inside of the pool because the water has receded. Mm. And it's just like, oh, that's a nice touch because that's like Jennifer's thing. Needy gets this spidey sense that Chip's in danger. So she's running through the woods and then she finds her corsage that Chip got for her and realizes that Chip's where Jennifer is. And then she runs to the pool house and she busts in and finds that Jennifer is feeding on Chip in the pool. Right. And she has taken a nasty chunk out of Chip's neck. And so without even thinking, Needy jumps in the water and she was trying to fight with Jennifer in the water, which is obviously a clumsy fight scene, a little bit comedic in that regard. But Jennifer kind of disappears. And while Needy is looking for Jennifer under the water, Chip kind of calls her name and throws her the pepper spray. And when Jennifer pops back out of the water, Needy is able to kind of get her in the face with the pepper spray. But then Jennifer rises up out of the water and she's like floating and Chip's like, she can fly. And Needy's like, it's just hovering. It's not that impressive. <laughs> and Jennifer's like, do you have to undermine everything I do? So again, this just like quippy dialogue. And Needy launches into this tirade. You were never a good friend. You were always so mean to me, even on the playground. And Jennifer's like, and now I'm eating your boyfriend. At least I'm consistent. Oh my God. And I think that Jennifer's choice of dress is interesting. She's wearing a long white gown with sort of like a black sash and like black straps. White is usually the color associated with sort of innocence or virginness. And I think being intercut with the black is symbolic, but also interesting in a way because she's the villain. She's still wearing so much white at once, like almost like a wedding gown-esque kind of dress. Yeah, even though she's in this sludge, but then she's expelling all this black. Like she's like drinking all this black. And you can tell that Needy's one of the only people that can get under Jennifer's skin because Needy starts saying, like, the only reason that you keep me around is because you're not socially relevant enough. And she's like, of course, I'm socially relevant. I was the snow queen. And she's like, yeah, two years ago, (laughs) you didn't need laxatives to keep you thin. Like, again, this like 2009 stuff. But they're fighting. They're fighting. And she's just like, I'm going to eat your soul and shit it out, Needy. And Needy's like, I thought you only ate boys. And this is the iconic, I go both ways, neck crack attack. Oh like, my God. Thing that this is like known for. So as they're fighting, Chip is able to take a pool net handle and impale Jennifer's body. jennifer's stomach more specifically with it and with that jennifer gathers herself and then she ends up leaving needy realizes that chip can't really be saved 
No, he's bleeding out. And he has been the whole time this fight scene has ensued. And so he dies on the floor and Needy is pretty fucked up now. And so when she gets home, we see her in her... She's laying on her bed in her gross like sludge outfit, her like 80s dress. And she decides that she's gonna do something about what has happened. So she grabs a box cutter, like a utility knife, and she breaks into Jennifer's window. We saw a scene of Jennifer lying in her bed, sort of emaciated in the beginning of the movie. Now we're returning to that scene because she didn't have her full feeding on Chip. Right. And I'm wondering if that's because he wasn't helpless. I'm thinking about it like, is it that she just couldn't kill him and finish the job? Or was it that he didn't actually believe that Needy did what she did? You can tell that Chip actually really never believed that Needy cheated on him. So I'm wondering if even after a little bit of a feeding, that it's because Chip wasn't emotional. He wasn't in the headspace she would have needed him to be in. So anyway... Needy breaks through the window. Her and Jennifer have a huge fight. They're on the bed. They're quarreling, which is also really interesting because of the sort of sexual undertones that have been lacing their relationship from the beginning of the movie. And then, wait, you're going to be so proud of me. What? Wait, what were you going to say? Well, I was saying I was going to agree with you because the way that they're fighting, Needy doesn't go with the box cutter first, straddles her and strangles her, which. Yes. Yes. She tops her. Yes. Which is a sign of dominance and power. Yes, but then Jennifer ends up levitating. Yeah. They end up quarreling in the air. Yeah, they quarrel. And then doesn't Needy get her back down and like tops her for a final time? Well, the reason that she falls back down is because Needy grabs (sighs) at her BFF necklace and rips it off of Jennifer. And that causes whatever telekinetic bond that they have to break and Jennifer starts falling very slow motion back toward the bed and then Needy's able to grab her box cutter. I wanted to appreciate one of my favorite pieces of dialogue in the film is when they're fighting. She's like, you see, this This is a box cutter. I'm going to stab you through the heart with it. And Jennifer's like, oh, do you get all your murder weapons from Home Depot? (laughs) They're so butch. (laughs) (laughs) As a butch identifying lady, I just thought that was very funny. But yes, because Jennifer's falling backwards, Needy's able to position the knife in such a way she's able to stab Jennifer on the heart on the fall down. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I thought you'd be proud of me for noticing. That they were top? Yeah. (laughs) And then this is actually Diablo Cody's favorite part of dialogue in the film where she stabs Jennifer and Jennifer's like, my tit. Yeah. And Needy's like, no, Jennifer, your heart. And it's because everyone in that moment is looking at Megan Fox's chest or is like looking and sexualizing her even to the point where Jennifer's sexualizing herself she's like my tit and it's just like no like your heart I just stabbed you in the heart like that's not what you should be looking at right now damn damn so then after three seconds of kind of taking in the moment for the first time Jennifer's mom shows up in the movie Mm -hmm. she walks in with throng honey and finds needy over Jennifer's dead body And that's where we cut back to Needy in Juvie. And we come to find out that Needy has inherited some of Jennifer's powers because during the fight, Jennifer bites Needy. But because Needy lives, she inherited some of Jennifer's demon powers. And 
It's important that we see Needy before and after the whole ordeal because she's no longer wearing glasses. She's wearing her hair down. She's obviously in like a jumpsuit, but looks a lot more aggressive, looks a lot more dominating to the point where she's able to levitate, break out of the prison, walk through the chain link fence. And she finds the knife and the balls that like end up emptying out of Devil's Kettle and she hitches a ride to Low Shoulder's next show. Mm -hmm. And as the credits start to roll, we see pictures flash across the screen in a slideshow style of Low Shoulder at their show, as if somebody has the camera and is taking pictures of their night. And as the photos roll, we see them get more and more terrifying and aggressive. And we see that Needy has gone and murdered all of the members of Low Shoulder. And there's a little bit of poetic justice there at the end of the film. So that's Jennifer's body. That is Jennifer's body. But I want to talk about themes that we saw throughout. And yeah, a little bit about like just, again, it's legacy. Because obviously, you can tell I love the movie so much. I don't know if you look at it a little differently now after our discussion of it. But there's some other context that I wanted to apply to it just in terms of some of the stuff that ends up coming up throughout. So the first one I wanted to talk about was friendship between women. And it's always juxtaposed between Needy's codependency and Jennifer's like attitude, Jennifer's feeling of superiority over Needy because she isn't as conventionally attractive or she doesn't offer the same things that Jennifer does. And again, like I mentioned, it really does well in depicting that childhood friendship and that childhood loyalty dissolving over time as we mature. But... Cody really was capturing that tension between those two things and being able to personify those two different kinds of people as an opposites attract type of thing within a friendship in that dynamic. So on speaking about the intimacy between Jennifer and Needy, she says, there is a sexual energy between the girls, which is kind of authentic because I know when I was a teenage girl, the friendships that I had with other girls were almost romantic. They were so intense. Mm. I wanted to sleep at my friend's house every night. I wanted to wear her clothes. We would talk on the phone until our ears ached. I wanted to capture that heightened feeling you get as an adolescent that you don't really feel as a grown up. You like your friends when you're a grown up, but you don't need to sleep in the same bed with them and talk to them on the phone till 5 a.m. every night. Wow. But like, think about how intense those friendships were when you are still developing. Well, your whole adolescence, it's all emotions you're feeling for the first time. Close friendship, romantic connections, confusion, anger, jealousy. And while it can be like contested whether Needy was sexually attracted to Jennifer or not, we at least get a level of confirmation that Jennifer's into women with the I go both ways type of situation. So reading that and like kind of seeing that tension played out on screen, especially as a queer person growing up, was so authentic and really hit such a nerve for me because when I was growing up and not really realizing what queerness felt like or what attraction to women felt like like that's what it felt like it just felt like very intense friendships and always felt like i was so much more invested in the friendship than my other friend was and the second that she got a boyfriend i was nothing anymore and that tension that i felt and that jealousy that i felt and i don't think that's because i necessarily had or harbored romantic feelings for every you know friend that i had at the time because really like your best friend is your partner not necessarily in a romantic sense, no, but, I know ha- what you mean, yeah. but holds that intimacy until you find it elsewhere in a romantic sense. Mm-hmm. So being able to capture that and really pay homage to that, like what male audience is really going to understand that level of sense? And that's not to say the same thing doesn't exist between men, but 
I can't speak to that because I'm not a man, but Mm -hmm. I can speak to the intimacy of female friendships when they are evolving in that intensity that I can harbor, especially when you're still figuring things out. That was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) It is something that it's like you have a relationship with somebody and the moment it starts to change, it's almost as though your identity starts to change, especially when you base your identity off of how another person perceives you. But I think towards the end, it becomes very clear that Jennifer also seemed to be basing her relationship or her identity rather off of her relationship with Needy. Yeah, that's a good point. Because again, when Jennifer was seeking Needy's attention, she ran to Chip and it's Mm -hmm. like this constant push-pull. Then going back to this idea of sexual assault and exploitation, like I mentioned earlier, Megan Fox was going through a lot during the filming of of Jennifer's body. So she was recalling this and in referencing the timing the movie came out, she says... I feel like the scene where they sacrificed me was really reflective of my relationship with movie studios at the time. I felt like it is what they were willing to do, literally bleed me dry. They didn't care about my health, my well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically at all. They were willing to sacrifice me physically in order to get what they wanted out of it. And it didn't matter how many times I spoke up and said that I was hurting, that this wasn't right, that I needed someone to protect me, that this was going on, that I needed someone to listen. It didn't matter at all. The crying and the pain were really genuine in that moment moment that's really powerful it's powerful and it's heartbreaking it is because or we weren't even positioned to empathize with jennifer's Mm -hmm. character really Mm -hmm. at all like there's very few scenes in the movie where we feel bad for jennifer it's when she's being attacked and then maybe for the dance she's wiping the makeup on her face and you could tell she's really sickly and she's not feeling very well and that she's Mm -hmm. so insecure about herself Mm -hmm. but otherwise we're we're meant to like view jennifer as a bitch Something else I wanted to touch on earlier was Jennifer as a succubus and the idea that succubi purposely go after men who are emotionally vulnerable. I think that that is also interesting if we're looking at it through the lens of sexual abuse and the cycle of abuse, because Jennifer, when she was murdered and turned into this literal demon, was scared. She was hopeless. She was isolated in the woods with a band who cared about their indie reputation more than a human life. And the fact that she went on to sort of carry that pattern in her own victimization is really interesting. And it makes me want to kind of look more into lore of succubi. I did read that, and this is uncorroborated, I don't know if this is true, but there was speculation that Lilith, the first wife of Adam, like, Adam and Eve, was turned into a succubus after she left the Garden of Eden. So like this idea of succubi has been around and is literally referenced in the Bible, which I think is really interesting. And kind of having this modern take on what a succubus is, is interesting, I guess, as far as looking at it through the lens of sexual assault and what that meant historically and what it means now. And I also think it's interesting that it is a succubus because the band did a ritual to give men power, to lift up this guy's career. But what ended up happening in the opposite, because she wasn't a virgin, is that she takes power from men. Exactly. So I I like that little invert. And I like that you mentioned the state that we found Jennifer in when she was sacrificed because... Up until Jennifer tells us what happened to her, we assume that she was like raped or sexually assaulted. That is the presumption that we operate under until she clarifies that it was like a satanic ritual. She was literally murdered. Yeah. 
so that's like the last theme I wanted to hit on was revenge. So like, because what happens to Jennifer is ambiguous until the end, the film can be almost reviewed as a rape revenge film, which Mm -hmm. is its own subgenre in horror, which is a touchy area, but like it is and it exists for a reason. Because the way that this film views justice is it takes the form of Jennifer becoming the sexual aggressor, like her attackers. She's saying, I need you scared. She mm-hmm. is, I mean, even if you look at the instance with Jonas and Colin, she's kind of sexually assaulting them. She's not asking oh, consent. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. ripping their clothes off. She's really like kind of forcing them to be comfortable with something they might not be down with, especially in the state that they're in. Yeah, exactly. So the form of justice is her really taking inventory and her like getting revenge on people who might not deserve it, like you said, because these guys are, you know, didn't really do anything to her and they're and they're emotionally vulnerable. But this calls back to another quote from that Constance Grady article. She writes kind of a little bit about how this film can be contextualized in a post-Me Too world. So she talks about, in a post-Me Too world, the implications of this storyline look uncomfortably familiar. It's the story of a group of powerful men sacrificing a girl's body on the altar of their own professional advancement. Mm. And it's also the story of them using her torment as a bonding activity. Mm. What Jennifer's body offers up in response to the trauma and tragedy of what happened to Jennifer in the van is the cathartic fantasy of what happens next, of Jennifer turning her trauma against her attackers, of her using her victimized, violated body to wreak bloody vengeance on the patriarchy. And lo, suddenly Jennifer's body is not a sex fantasy. It's a revenge fantasy. I'm obsessed with that. And also the fact that her friend, Needy, despite the bullshit, is the one that ultimately gets the poetic justice for Jennifer. And I think that in that way, there's kind of the story paying homage to women supporting women. Like, no matter what bullshit goes on, like, you still see Needy breaking out of that institution, channeling the power given to her by Jennifer and going after the men that fucked her friend up in the first place. I really like that you said that because I didn't even think about it that way. I just kind of thought about it as, you know, she needed to feed and like what started this all. But it really is revenge for Jennifer or Mm -hmm. revenge on behalf of Jennifer. Yeah. So I'll end it on the idea that Jennifer's body is super relevant now and that obviously it's found its audience, whether among queer horror fans or just women horror fans in general. And a lot of that is because it's being cited for being ahead of its time because of its commentary on sexual assault survivors and the focus on women's experiences and the idea that women aren't an accessory to the storyline men are. Like there's no central guy in this movie that's moving the plot along. Like, even Chip, who's the most central guy in this, is, like, a nothing character. It's just Mm -hmm. meant to give, to provide something Jennifer needed to fight about, Mm -hmm. essentially. Like, there's nothing that is central to the conflict about men except for the fact of the effect that it has on the women of this plot line. Mm -hmm. But I'll end it on this quote by Karen Kusama, who's the director of the film. So she says... The notion of the female as monstrous in itself has been a central tenet of horror since some of its earliest expressions. That's what remains profoundly meaningful to me about horror. It's one of the few genres that's had the guts to say that we, as a culture, are terrified of women and girls, and we are terrified of the power they have. Mm. And that's where I'm going to end it, because I fucking love Jennifer's body. I love the legacy that this leaves. I love the commentary that it has. What do you think now? I feel great. I feel enlightened. I feel like this was a really enlightening conversation for me. I feel like this was a really interesting film to watch. And it's definitely one that I know I'm going to be thinking about. Definitely for the next couple days consistently, but then intermittently from here on out. Because it it really does have that hold, especially given the context. Mm. 
Mm. And then also kind of where we see this film from 2009 foreshadows so many of the conversations that we're having today. So you can't make this up, folks. But speaking of context, next week, we're doing something a little different where we're going to be going through some of the historical context through the decades of horror. So we're actually going to be taking a little bit of an inventory of throughout the decades, what have been the most prominent horror movies and what is the context surrounding those horror movies and what does that represent about women's fears and what was afflicting women at the time that these movies came out. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting starting, I guess, in 2009, because we have talked a lot about, you know, a specific fear of women, which is sexual abuse, sexual assault, among other things. And so I guess we're going to be turning back the clock from here and starting in the 20th century and just kind of seeing where it lies. So we're combining two of our loves, me, you know, I love context. (laughs) And Shay, of course, loves horror. And we're going to combine those two together to see what we can come up with for you. And then after that, we just got a bunch of fun fan favorites ready to roll out. Yeah. Again, as always, if you have something that you particularly would like us to cover, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Instagram at the same place, the Horrors Podcast. And thank you so much for being so gracious about our break. Yeah, it really kind of came out of nowhere. We were going to record an episode and then we just didn't. There were kind of some things that happened and both of us decided we needed a moment. And yeah, we're really excited to be back. It feels really good. It does. Okay, cool. All right. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.